Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, working to change the cancer paradigm through personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, Dr. Chagpar is joined by Dr. Raj Ayagari for a conversation about interventional radiology and minimally invasive surgery. Dr. Ayagari is Assistant Professor of Radiology and Biomedical Imaging at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Chagpar is Assistant Director of Global Oncology at the Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. Raj, you know, we talk about radiology, and most people think about radiology as being x-rays, like a chest x-ray or a CAT scan. What's interventional radiology? So interventional radiology is basically image-guided minimally invasive surgery. Um, we do lots of things uh, relative to cancer where we do, uh, we will go into the arteries, we'll do procedures that are under x-ray, CAT scan or ultrasound guidance, we'll go into the blood vessels, the arteries or the veins, we'll go to cancers, to various tumors, we'll do something called embolization where we'll inject these little beads that may be coated with a chemotherapy drug or uh, radioactive substance that can treat tumors in a minimally invasive and often outpatient approach without any big incisions or, or, or scars. Um, we also do a lot of other things. Um, we stop bleeding uh, when patients come in with uh, trauma, splenic uh, pelvic trauma. We do lots of opening up of vessels and restoring blood flow, so angioplasty, stents, things like that. Um, we also do a lot of other non-vascular work, biopsies, drainages, uh, putting tubes in obstructed kidneys, obstructed gallbladders, obstructed livers, things like that. So it sounds like you really use x-rays to guide kind of interventions to Correct. do stuff. X-rays, CAT scan, and ultrasound, all sorts of imaging modalities. And so it's really interesting when you started off talking about kind of minimally invasive surgery because a lot of us think about surgery as a big deal, right? Like somebody is taking a knife and opening you up and often trying to get cancer out. So how do you do that? in a minimally invasive way with x-rays. Sure. So we basically um, will, if we're doing a, a procedure where we go through someone's arteries, for example, we'll put a small little hole, maybe two or three millimeters into the artery, and through that we'll thread a little catheter that's about as big around as a spaghetti needle that you can see under x-ray uh, imaging. And then we will use that imaging to kind of guide the catheter into the blood vessels feeding the tumor. We'll inject dye, map out the blood vessels, find our way into, for example, a liver tumor, um, and then we will inject lots of little beads either coated with, like I said, a, a drug or sometimes a, a radioactive substance, and those beads will kind of float in, cut off the blood flow to the tumor, and then the drug can kind of be released from the bead and treat the tumor. We can do this on an outpatient basis, essentially. We then take the catheter out, put a little bandage on the patient, and then if they stay overnight or go home the same day, uh, it, it, you know, they, they, the, the course, the post-procedure course is much uh, more abbreviated. The recovery time is much shorter than if someone has an actual incision. So are patients awake when you do this, or is this under an anesthetic? Sure. So typically they'll get uh, moderate sedation medication. So they'll be kind of in a twilight, something akin to what they might be when they get a colonoscopy or, or an endoscopy. Yeah. And so is it just as good, like if you have, so you were talking about a liver cancer, is it just as good 
to have you put in this fine little catheter and these little beads that have chemotherapy in there or, or radioactive substances, is that just as good as actually having the liver tumor resected? Or do you do that only when you can't resect something? Right. So it depends on the size of the tumor. Another technology that we do is called ablation, where we'll actually use ultrasound or CAT scan guidance to put a small needle through the skin into the tumor and then actually just burn it, or sometimes we can freeze them as well. Um, so for that technology, again, it's through a small hole. The patient goes home typically the same day. For t- in the liver, for tumors smaller than three centimeters, uh, if we cover it well, the 10-year survival and disease-free recurrence rates are basically equivalent to surgery. Hmm. Um, now, when we talk about the embolization, that is not the same as, as a total complete cure for tumors. We're usually doing them doing what we can to kind of keep the tumor under control for as long as possible. There's certainly different candidates for different procedures, and generally for liver cancer, for example, um, if they can be ablated or surgically removed, that is the standard of therapy. But there are lots and lots of patients who don't fall into that that category of, of health that they can withstand a big surgery like that. And so for them, um, the, the embolization is a good procedure. So wait, but the ablation, so the ablation is where you go in and you essentially either fry the tumor or you freeze the tumor or you do something to make the tumor evaporate. And but that's done with a small needle too. Correct. So, and that's better than embolization, which is where you kind of inject these beads and cut off the blood supply. So, who would not be a candidate for ablation? Because it seems like if ablation's better, everybody should go for ablation sure. instead of embolization. Right, right. So, tumors that are bigger than three centimeters, uh, especially over four centimeters in diameter, can be really difficult to ablate thoroughly. Because it's too big. Too big to kind of put in enough heat to kind of treat it. Someone has five or six tumors, you can imagine burning holes all over the place might be a little, dif- you know, a lot for the patient to handle. Or if someone has kind of diffuse disease throughout an organ, the liver, for example, um, then the ablation is just, it, ablation is for a focal tumor or a few tumors. Got it. That are a certain size. And so is it that these techniques only work in certain organs. So, for example, you know, many patients have breast cancer, and yet we don't really hear about uh, these kind of interventional radiology procedures for breast cancer. Right. That's a great question. Actually, I just was talking about it with my wife yesterday. Um, So these technologies have been proven and have a long track record in organs like the liver, uh, the kidneys, um, actually the prostate, um, and uh, in certain circumstances, the the uterus. Um, Now, we do it also for lung tumors sometimes. Breast tumors, it's, 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 it's something that one would think would lend itself to this kind of technology, but I think there are not a lot of data out there and not a lot of people who've, who've actually tried it. And I, I know your expertise is in that. Maybe you can tell me more about that because I, I actually am, am very you know uninformed in that kind of area of the body in terms of what's available. But I would love to see it happen, and I've heard of studies um, you know, where this technology is applied. Um, but to, this, to date, there's really nothing out there in this kind of modality for that kind of cancer. Yeah. I mean, in breast cancer, people have tried ablation. They've tried ablation with uh, cryotherapy, where we freeze the tumor. They've tried it with radiofrequency ablation. They've tried it with um, high-frequency ultrasound. Um, They've tried it with laser. Um, 
And the issue really is that, you know, you don't uh, get 100 percent kill rate. And the imaging is such that um, even though it looks like it's completely cooked, uh, it might not be. It's hard and, to cover it, yeah. And, and the issue, too, is that breast cancer surgery is so well tolerated, right, and right. most women are so amenable to it, and it can be also done um, as an outpatient and so on and so forth, Absolutely. where it isn't um, one of those organs like the liver where you've got you know big blood vessels uh, and tumors can be in awkward spots that are difficult to surgically resect, where ablation uh, with interventional radiology is particularly helpful. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned a few other organs where interventional radiology really plays a key role in terms of management of cancer. Can you tell us more about that? Um, Sure. So actually, in cancer per se... um, Liver is our main kind of organ. We also work a lot in the kidney. We'll do um, more in that realm uh, percutaneous ablations, particularly cryoablations. So patients with tumors that are small enough to ablate and at this point, you know, the, the way the data play out, um, the, the resection, a small kind of partial uh, uh, resection of the kidney ends up still being the standard of care, um, the gold standard of care. But for tumors that are small and for patients who are not the best candidates for surgery, mm-hmm. we can do these ablations. And again, it's usually cryoablation in the kidney. Um, however, I think the, the 10-year data are approaching the quality of that for um, a partial nephrectomy. And I think as decades go by and, and the, the technology gets better, better and better and our experience gets more and more and more kind of complete, I think hopefully we'll, we'll kind of get to the point where we can offer an equivalent, uh, you know, rate of disease-free survival and recurrence. Yeah. And it's nice that, you know, especially if you can, if you've got a tumor in an area of the kidney where you would have to resect the whole kidney just because of the way the kidney works and its anatomy, um, when you can ablate that and leave the rest of the kidney function, just like you leave the rest of yeah, the liver yeah, function, yeah, exactly. um, uh, that's nice. So that's another difference with breast is that it's not really like you're losing function in this solid right. organ. Right, right. So tell me about um, other organs where, you know, you mentioned that kidney and liver are really your main uh, sources for cancer, but are there other, other sites uh, on the sure. horizon that you're looking to move into? Absolutely, so thanks for asking. So we're talking about um, now these days we've been doing a lot of embolization procedures in the prostate gland uh, in men. And so right now we do this for uh, benign prostatic hyperplasia. So as uh, pretty much every every one of us, well not you, but me, as we grow older and older, the prostate gets bigger and bigger and the large majority of men uh, suffer from BPH uh, at, you know, as they get older. Um, and so lots for lots of men, the medications that, we, uh, that are out there help open things up and let urine flow and people do quite well with those. But there are side effects with those medications, and at some point they they stop being as effective as one would like, and so then a patient starts considering a procedure to have uh, kind of that that channel opened up again. Um, Again, the gold standard of therapy currently is uh, what's called a TERP, a transurethral section of the prostate, Um, and a lot of people call call it the roto-rooter, where it's basically a a surgical procedure under general anesthesia where the urologist uh, places a rigid metal scope up the penis through the urethra, and then they basically kind of shave off or they'll use lasers to kind of uh, open up that channel. Um, It works very, very well. Again, it's the gold standard of therapy. 
but uh, probably for those out there listening to this, it, the, the description of the procedure tends to curl a lot of toes when you're describing the invasiveness of it. Um, and um, it, there are lots of uh, kind of side effects. The recovery can be kind of tough with it. Uh, one of the side effects is retrograde ejaculation, where uh, probably about more than half of men will not be able to have a norm normal sexual function afterwards. Um, so something we've been doing now uh, for probably about six or seven years it's kind of applying these embolization techniques that we've been doing for decades in other organs and kind of applying those to the prostate gland. And actually, I just did a procedure this morning where we, um, again, the patient comes in. Uh, it's an outpatient procedure. We go through a tiny little hole in the artery. Oftentimes, now we'll go through the wrist artery on the left side. We'll steer a little catheter all the way down to the arteries that feed the prostate. We'll inject these beads and then take everything out. The procedure lasts two or three hours. Uh, some people even do it faster. Um, and uh, then the patient goes home after a few hours of recovery. And usually within a few weeks and definitely by a month, they'd notice a substantial improvement in their flow. And um, by about three or four months, the gland slowly shrinks uh, over that time, and they, they do really, really well. Probably about nine out of 10 patients have great results. Um, and uh, the results are almost as equivalent as a TERP surgery um, in terms of the, the, the amount of symptom improvement and the, the improvement of flow. Um, right now, it's still not an FDA-approved procedure. It's still if you, you know, technically experimental, but we've been using these beads and these techniques and this kind of you know this 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 medical reasoning in other parts of the body for for decades, and so um, and for example, we do it for uterine fibroids in women, and we've been doing that for about twenty five years. So applying the anatomy, the technology, the physiology, the pathology to this, um, it, it just seems like it's going to work really, really well. And we now are getting five, six, year, seven year data on on this procedure, and the, and the results are are fantastic. So we're hoping as as time goes by, um, it'll it'll prove itself to be a, a mainstay of, of therapy therapy for BPH. Um, but you asked, you know, about kind of, you know, how this may relate to cancer. And, and so now, obviously, we talked about these embolization and ablation procedures we do for other organs. And so we hope that somewhere along the line, we'll be able to kind of start doing perhaps a chemoembolization for prostate cancer or a radioembolization for prostate cancer. And that's kind of, uh, there's a, been one or two studies out that have kind of started exploring that already. So that's kind of in the pipeline. Great. Well, I can't wait to learn more about uh, how embolization and uh, uh, ablation are really going to help revolutionize cancer care. But first, we need to take a short medical minute. Uh, stay tuned to learn more information about interventional radiology with my guest, Dr. Raj Ayagari. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. The American Cancer Society estimates that there will be over 75,000 new cases of melanoma in the U.S. this year, with over 1,000 of these patients living in Connecticut. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. 
This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Raj Ayagari. We're talking about interventional radiology, and right before the break, Raj was really telling us about some cool new technologies. Well, they're actually not that new, but really cool in the sense that they can now take a little catheter, put it in through your left wrist, drain a little catheter all the way down to your prostate. And for the men out there who have gotten large prostates, they can embolize or actually put in little beads that disrupt the blood flow to the prostate such that the prostate shrinks um, and you have good urine flow again, which is a really cool concept. And while still experimental, is something that they've been using at, at Yale for a while. And I had asked Raj right before the break about how this applies to cancer. So, Raj, is this going to be something where we take beads similar to what you were talking about in the liver that are coated with some kind of chemotherapy or some kind of radioactive substance such that for men who maybe either can't have a surgical procedure or don't want to have a surgical procedure because of all of the potential side effects, that they can then do this uh, to eliminate cancer or alternatively, that they can do this instead of this watchful waiting that I'm sure a lot of men may be a little bit anxious about. Sure, yeah. So that's a great, great question. So um, as you just mentioned, so the watchful waiting, uh, you know, the the prostate cancer treatment um, generally falls into kind of two large categories or patients, you know, the, the patients who are with disease severe enough and they're healthy enough to go for a curative treatment, um, be that a surgical resection or a focal ablation or uh, radiation therapy in certain cases. Um, And then there are lots of patients on the other end of the scale who have cancer that, say, spread beyond the gland or they're just not able to get a cure and they're in the kind of palliative, you know, treatment uh, kind of category. But there are a lot of patients that fall in between those two categories. Healthy men maybe with low-grade disease or maybe not so healthy men with kind of moderate-grade disease. And so you know, lots of prostate cancers um, are generally very kind of indolent. And if you look at kind of uh, um, autopsy studies where people have just looked at 80-year-old men who died for whatever reason, they look through their prostate glands, and probably almost 80% of them have cancer. So prostate cancer can be a very kind of slow-growing indolent thing. And so a lot of urologists and and just kind of our our medical kind of, um, you know, body in general has really tried to kind of not overtreat prostate cancer. A lot of patients out there probably don't need to be treated so aggressively. And so um, lot there, so there's been this kind of, this whole concept of watchful waiting and trying to kind of put patients into different categories uh, so that we could avoid overtreating them and exposing them to unnecessary risk. So um, when we apply kind of what we talked about with the liver treatments, kind of it's, it's this model called the local regional therapy that includes embolization with chemotherapy, embolization with radiation, and also ablations. We begin to kind of wonder, well, can we uh, apply this model to the prostate gland as well? We've been seeing that the prostate gland really tolerates incredibly well having its blood flow shut down. We've been doing this embolization procedure for for BPH now for six or seven years, and patients tolerate it wonderfully. Um, So then we begin to ask, well, for these people with prostate cancers, why can't we inject the beads that are coated with the chemotherapy or theoretically the radiation? And so there are a couple studies out there that have just been 
going on and come out uh, with some data this year, kind of exploring that possibility. Um, obviously, there's a long way to go before we can kind of you know claim this as a as a as a, a real kind of safe and proven treatment for prostate cancer. And there are a couple of technical issues that may make it a little more challenging to treat. Usually, prostate cancers pop up on the very outer edge of the gland. Mm. Whereas with this embolization procedure for the BPH, we're kind of more affecting the central core of the gland. Um, but that said, uh, there's a lot of promise in this procedure, and, and it's an application for cancer. So that's that's coming in the next few years. Um, we also talk about doing ablation in you know the tumor, uh, sorry, the liver or the kidney. Um, there are now uh, ways and techniques and technology to kind of do these ablations in the prostate as well. Um, we are developing here at Yale actually MR-guided. Um, uh, percutaneous biopsies and ablations of focal prostate cancers, again, for patients who may not be candidates for surgery or may not wish to go through the surgery. Um, so that's something we're actively developing now. And really, there's only, uh, well, I guess, one other institution in the country that's doing percutaneous um, MR-guided biopsies and uh, ablations of the prostate. The prostate gland is a very difficult organ to image, and MRI is generally the the imaging modality of choice, and so that's what we would like to use to guide our, our interventions as well. So, um, so, yeah, when we apply this kind of this whole liver therapy uh, kind of modal or uh, paradigm to prostate cancer, it really opens up a lot of exciting pathways for future treatments. Mm -hmm. And and so one question, though, I, I remember on a previous show that we had when we were talking about prostate cancer, um, our guest kind of said that usually if they're going to do a biopsy, it, it's often a random biopsy in most sure. centers, Sure. Um, which made me think that prostate cancer was more ubiquitous throughout the gland, whereas ablation is a focal, like, I see the lesion, let me ablate right, it. Right, right. So how does that work? Is, is it really that prostate cancer is focal, but we just have poor imaging? Or is it that it is more gland a glandular disease that affects the whole gland, and somehow we're going to try to ablate the whole gland. Right, right. So it's kind of in between, but probably more towards the the former part of that. So prostate cancer, the way we see it, the way we image it on MRI is typically a focal disease, one or two or three or maybe four spots that light up. Um, the problem is prior to at least the past decade, if not less, um, we never really had good ways to image the prostate. Prostate MRI, just like in the breast, um, really can image uh, you know small tumors well. Prior to that technology, um, literally the biopsies were random. We would hope that you know we would just kind of or urologists would biopsy the entire gland and hope that they caught mm. you know the one or two small tumors. Now that said, the cancer we we know for a fact that the 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 cancers that we see on MRI are kind of, they're bigger than what we see, and probably the same as probably with most cancers, that the imaging is underestimating the size of the tumor. But that said, tumors that we can see uh, that merit treatment are usually kind of worth going after, whereas a lot of people speculate that spots of cancer that don't show up in imaging may be the cancer that we don't even need to bother treating. Yeah, that's so, too indolent. Yeah. So so we do think of it as a focal disease, and and, and, and when we talk about kind of ablations or biopsies, we would like to be very focal. Um, again, the technology is really just coming into, you know, kind of creation in the past few years. And so here at Yale, uh, there's a, a group uh, led by Dr. Preston Sprinkle, who's a urologist, um, 
who do, uh, it's basically fusion biopsies. So we'll get an MR, uh, an MRI of the patient's prostate that'll show us where there are a couple spots that are highly suspicious. And then he'll bring the patient in and put a, a, an ultrasound probe in, uh, in the rectum of the patient. And they'll fuse those images with the MRI and then do what's called a transrectal biopsy, which is how the random biopsies were done, but now they're being done with more imaging guidance. And that fusion biopsy is, has proven to be a you know a fantastic way to kind of uh, increase the yield for biopsies. And so then some urologists take that same technology and in the operating room will do uh, ablations where they use this fusion imaging, the MRI to help show them where the tumors are, the ultrasound in the operating room to guide the, the ablation probe placement. Um, so we're now developing technology to do that all in the MRI scanner, even away from the operating room and avoiding uh, you know, putting things in the rectum because that can increase the risk for infection. Um, so that's where we stand with that. But it is a focal cancer, I think, generally speaking, and one at least that we try and would like to treat focally. Yeah. And so the other the other disease site that you mentioned, albeit for fibroids, was uh, uterine fibroids, sure. where you've used this uh, for benign disease. Right. But we know that women get uterine cancer, too. Is there a potential that just in the same way that you're moving embolization of the prostate potentially into treating prostate cancer that this could be used in uterine cancer? Sure. So that's another great question. So probably not. And and probably I may not be the best person to answer the, the, the kind of the, the science, to talk about the science behind this, but we know for a fact that there are lots of organs in the body where we would love to be able to embolize tumors and, and get good treatments, but we just, uh, the the, the technology just doesn't work. For example, in the lung, for example, in the kidney, um, and also, as you asked about, in the uterus. Um, those types of cancers, for whatever reason, it just seems their biology, their tumor biology is different. They don't, they're not so encapsulated, so um, limited in, in their blood supply to very focal vessels. And so the tissue spreads, I guess a lot of it has to do with the blood flow, and, and the, the, the cancer can spread beyond areas that are supplied by one artery or another. And so going in to embolize, say, a a renal tumor has really not has been shown to not be very helpful at all, and, and unfortunately, in uterine cancer, uh, the situation is probably even worse. Um, it's a uterine cervical cancer. Gynecologic malignancies generally just don't tend to lend themselves to being treated by uh, embolization procedures. So. What about ablation? I mean, we know that in cervical dysplasia, high grade dysplasia, they'll often like freeze the cervix, right? Sure. So, so could we use that same kind of thinking to ablate uterine? Cancers? I think it would be tough. I think it's uh, they're hard to image, and mm. so when when they're doing a cervical ablation, it's usually under direct visualization, mm -hmm. presumably, and they can see where they want to treat. Um, if we were doing something for the uterus or a uterine tumor, um, we depend on imaging uh, to kind of guide us. Uh, typically, unless we're you know opening a patient up in the operating room, and the imaging of such cancers can be very very difficult to definitively localize them. Likewise, there are lots of other organs uh, in the abdomen and pelvis right adjacent to the uterus, and one has to be careful about damaging those organs, and and that can be tough. In the cervix, you have kind of room for error a lot more, I would I would guess, but um, in the uterus, not so much. Right. The other the other place where I think interventional radiology really plays a huge role is trying to get at cancers that we can't get at well um, as surgeons, um, particularly because they're in tight spots mm -hmm. or they're near important structures that are at risk or um, that 
if we were to twerk, uh, that that would lead to side effects. So very similar to um, what we were talking about in terms of the liver and the prostate. And so one of the areas that I think about is the brain and Mm -hmm. brain metastases. Is there a role for interventional radiology in ablation of brain metastases? Well, I actually do almost nothing intracranially, so I don't want to speak. I don't have any experience or or much authority on the topic. But I will say... um, Again, imaging is a, is the challenge there, and obviously the the stakes are much higher uh, if you're in the brain. If you're in the kidney and you ablate a little bit of the normal tissue, you know, no big deal. Obviously, in the brain, that's uh, not the case. Also, getting in through the skull, you know, that requires drilling a hole versus just putting a needle through the skin to get to other organs. So, I think. Um, Doing something percutaneous like an ablation or an embolization uh, is not really kind of there in terms of uh, intracranial problems. Um, but there are a lot of things called, for example, gamma knife, things that where, where uh, radiation oncologists can actually focus a radiation beam to kind of be more focal and not and surgical, I guess, you know, using the term very loosely. Um, but yeah, in terms of what we can offer as interventional radiologists intracranially, uh, we just don't have much to offer for cancers. Yeah. And so it's interesting because all of the different specialties kind of have their own um, little bit that they're very good at. So in my experience, uh, the collaboration has been fantastic. Um, In fact, uh, when I started working here, uh, well, about a year after I started working, about five years ago, uh, a friend of mine who's a urologist came to me and said, hey, I heard about this thing, prostate artery embolization. Can you start it up here at Yale? And I said, yeah, sure, I would love to. So I just kind of looked into it and then... um, gave a presentation about it and uh, they started referring patients and the first patient did great and they the urologist will say nothing beats the grin on that guy's face when they walk in uh, a month after and they can urinate again they I think they really recognize the value of what we can offer and really want to do what's best for the patient and so it's it's been a great collaboration Dr. Raj Ayagari is assistant professor of radiology and biomedical imaging at Yale School of Medicine If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.